Good afternoon. Welcome to UK Column News. Today is Wednesday, the 27th of July, 2022, just after one o'clock. Your host, myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted that we've got a packed news today. We've got Alex Thompson, uh, we've got Mark Anderson, and we've also got our nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. Well, we're going to kick straight off with uh, the BBC. I make no apologies for this because, of course, the BBC is the propaganda machine of UK. And what is interesting about this particular page, it's the overview of the war in UK Ukraine. Remember, we've been pointing out that the war in Ukraine has been shrinking ever smaller on the BBC website. So unless you click the tiny button at the top of the uh, red banner, or sorry, on the red banner for the BBC News, uh, you're likely to skip over it. What caught my eye in this uh, overview is the sheer madness of the headlines. So we've got gas prices soar as Russia cuts German supply. Russia wages gas war with supply cuts. That's uh, from Zelensky. UK sanctions leaders of Ukraine breakaway regions. Uh, we've got Ukraine could restart grain exports. Um, Russia denies causing global food crisis. So if you analyze the reporting here, particularly on the gas side, we've got the madness of the UK, the Western powers, the EU, the US, providing weapons to kill Russians. And then at the same time, they appear puzzled as to why the Russians would not want to supply gas in particular to Europe. So I'm going to bring Alex in straight away here. We had a little discussion a few minutes ago, but it seems, Alex, that we've got complete breakdown of any coherent political thought, not only in the UK, but also in uh, Europe and the United States. You're, of course, going to be criticised by some for the broad brush caption that you gave there, Brian, but political and economic thought is not just a nice sounding phrase, as you're well aware, and that's why you've used it. It encompasses all the common sense of recent ages as to how nations deal with each other. It's as with personal interactions in families or among friends or colleagues. If you irrevocably break down the trust between people with violence and uh, horrendous threats and insults, it's going to take some while, if ever, to re-establish trust, isn't it? And in the absence of that, you will not have fraternal and trade links with those who have so abused you. Uh, the West has had a bubble uh, mentality for so long, uh, including the previous time this came to the fore, 2006, when Ukraine and Georgia derided the Russians as gas Putin. Uh, and all of this was predicated upon the idea that the, the Russians were beneath us and that they must continue fronting up the raw materials for the great and good of this world, regardless of what rhetoric we used against them or what we were doing on their borders. Uh, yes, the whole thing is incredible. And of course, big problems in Germany. Germany is really struggling uh, as a result of the cuts in the supply of gas. And what do we see? We're seeing breakdown within the political structure of the European Union as member states. They haven't turned on each other yet, but I predict that's what's coming. Uh, meanwhile, um, UK is leading the drive for that war in Ukraine to continue. And of course, we don't really care too much about the, the, the gas because we're not dependent. So take us on uh, the rest of your segment here on the gas supply issue. You were quite prescient there about people turning on each other at nation state level in the EU, Brian. Uh, first of all, we have Euroactive, uh, quite a mainline title that's read by a lot of Eurocrats and people interested in EU level policy, which this is the uh, middle of the month was leaking and it's subsequently been confirmed by the European Commission in the proper document release. The leaks plan at this stage in mid-July that the EU was planning to reduce gas consumption. So it was drafting plans to help EU countries reduce gas demand, fossil gas, interesting phrase used there. Um, the document had been seen by Euroactive's journalists ahead of its release uh, and spoke of a likely deterioration of gas supply outlook. And it was duly published on Wednesday, the 20th of July with the title Save Gas for a Safe Winter. And halfway through the bit that's on stage uh, on screen at the moment, we see that uh, the EU has moved to the alert stage with this European Commission document. Uh, that means that it judges there is concrete, serious and reliable information 
that an event likely to result in significant deterioration of the gas supply situation may occur. So we're seeing public buildings having their heating times and heating intensity cut where that is technically possible. The more smart sensors, the more feasible that is. And this also applies to tenants of public housing corporations and other manifestations of local government. We see also that the plans for the disruption talk about societal criticality, cross-border supply chains, substitution and reduction possibilities, and damage to installations. So they are talking about having uh, to force people to cut their gas consumption if they cannot be persuaded otherwise. And this may go down to specific uses at product level, not just sector level. For example, glass making, which is energy intensive, may be told, well, you can produce glass for jars, food containers, vials and syringes for healthcare, um, but not all glass production, such as, let's say, vehicle windows or housing windows. Uh, let's zoom in on the country that has the dubious honor of playing host to the capital of the European Union in, in its institutions, such as the Commission the Brussels Times, an English language title there for Eurocrats and international residents of the capital of Belgium, speaks about a winter plan, which was again mid-month. Now, this is getting closer to what you were foreseeing, Brian, about nations turning on each other. Belgium is, Belgium is the least likely because, quite frankly, and with all respect for the real people who live there, it's a fake nation and everyone knows that. So Belgium has got this rhetoric of solidarity. Uh, it does have a non-negligible slice of the North Sea, but not very much gas deposits in it. They have a liquid national ga natural gas terminal on the coast at Zeebrugge that can import gas from all over the world, hint American liquefied natural gas from fracking, and they have a strategic gas reserve. But look what happens here. The, uh, there are very few federal ministries left in Brussels. Everything's been devolved to Flanders, Wallonia, and the Brussels capital region. But one of the three ministries that is left nationally is the energy ministry. And here, Tina von der Straten, the uh, federal level Belgian energy minister, is saying the question for this winter is not whether we have sufficient energy, but the question is whether we can be as solidarity minded as possible. Even the adjective solidaire doesn't translate well. It's embedded in Belgian discourse in a way it isn't in Britain. How we can show as much solidarity as possible. That's what our winter plan is about. We're looking at all the scenarios. And uh, let's look at the end of the Brussels Times article in the long term. Von der Straten, the minister, wants to strengthen Belgium as a European energy hub. That means importing other continents' energy, Brian. There'll be nothing left natively in Europe. And so Belgium is the, is the harbinger of this, as I say, because it's a, a, a proto-EU of its own. Read Paul Billin's book, A Throne in Brussels, to understand that. And Belgium is the first that's allowing itself to get away with this rhetoric of, for the good of others, we can't consume all our own gas. Now, if that's the case with a coastal country with small but significant gas reserves and importing abilities and infrastructure and reasonably good governance, how, how are central European country with, countries with no hydrocarbon deposits of their own going to fare, which at the moment, in the case of Finland and some of the Baltic and Balkan countries, are already 100% dependent on imported Russian gas? Well, it's a very good question. We're, we're going to watch how this plays out. Alongside this, we've also got the fact that the European Union is effectively bending its own rules in order to still be able to get its hands on Russian oil. So it's almost a psychotic policy which is happening. But ultimately, the, my prediction is that uh, uh, indeed they are going to be at each other's throats. We'll just wait. And uh, have you got more in that segment, Alex? Just to round off that segment, Defence News, as usual, uh, you need to look for this Washington-based title, Defence News with an S, the American spelling, to find out what's happening in Britain and on the European continent in the bits of military policy that really matter, the industry and the planning. So in Siegen in Germany, uh, a report came in by Sebastian Springer, a German who is retained by Defence News in Washington, uh, reporting that EU member nations had a deadline of a few days ago, or a couple of days ago, the 25th of July, to deliver shopping lists of everything they've expended in the Ukraine that they want the EU budget, the defence budget, to help restock. And this will be exclusively European-made products. But again, uh, the, uh, the Wall Street uh, listed manufacturers will find a way of getting in there. Uh, we see that the countries that have delivered munitions in great quantities, uh, that's some European countries, plus at least Canada that was very frank about it, they've expended all of their uh, their stock of certain armaments, weapons systems and vehicle types. So they've got internal pressure. This is the, the dissent and disquiet in the EU again to actually secure their own country's defences. Uh, there are European countries, it would seem now, that would be powerless to repel an invasion uh, if it happened tomorrow because all of their kit 
has gone to Ukraine. Officials are at high level are being quoted here off the record, working against the clock as mem member states grow frustrated with EU bureaucracy and they have to weigh up what the advantages are of buying from abroad into America or buying from their own production systems. A quote, lack of trust in joint procurements, which is the flagship policy of the EU's PESCO policy, that remains prevalent in the, e in the EU's well, fancily named defence ecosystem, which means high-level policy making, according to a senior EU official. It's not looking rosy. Okay. Well, there we are. Lack of trust. I think uh, that's uh, certainly gonna, going to uh, grow. And uh, there's a little bit more text. I've brought part of it on screen. Do you, do you want to mention that briefly? Uh, you muted. Version of the EU regulation to clarify how the defence fund for the EU actually works, according to the European Defence Agency, the, Europeans the European Union's Pentagon. Uh, because there's so many stakeholders in this uh, nearly 30-member block, and it, almost all of them are now in the military bit as well, plus a couple of non-EU members, that means that there could be 60 to 90 people around the table deciding in how you, the European Union restocks its defence financially. And if, if you want to create chaos, have a big meeting, I think is the very simple rule. So I, I think we can predict what's going to come out of that. But uh, let's move on to the really important things that uh, UK and the US in particular have certainly started at fermented the war in Ukraine and they're continuing to supply the weapons. Uh, what is uh, Mr. Zelensky up to? Uh, well, this is the latest headline. I'm entitled in... Um, Zelensky power status, fashion versus death and carnage at the front. Uh, I find this totally astonishing, but in the middle of the war with uh, thousands, tens of thousands of his countrymen dying at the front, uh, Zelensky and his wife have been posing for Vogue magazine. So this is a couple of the articles talking about it. The one on the right, the image on the right, I just find obscene uh, that you're missing, look at, uh, sorry, you're mixing look at me type uh, images with fashion, high fashion against the backdrop of what is essentially death. And uh, this has been circulating on social media, which is a film clip uh, which purports to be the actual Vogue team in uh, filming the Zelenskys. And uh, this is truly astonishing if we remember the sheer death and carnage at the front uh, and Zelensky and his wife are making no effort to call for peace. On the contrary, it uh, just goes on to call for more weapons and munitions. But if we dare speak out about this, we're in for trouble. And The Guardian here, with a very critical article entitled British pro-Kremlin video blogger added to UK government Russia sanctions list. And uh, we're just put a little caption in here because essentially what this is about is that if you dare to challenge the UK state of view, then you're going to pay the price. So let's have a look at uh, the, a little bit of detail from this article. Um, so this is uh, Boris Johnson described Philip's interview with uh, um, the Britain Aslin, who was captured as a propaganda message for Russia. Um, Aslin's local MP Roger Jenrick said Philip's video showed his constituent handcuffed, physically injured and being interviewed under duress for propaganda purposes. Well, that's his opinion. We could have a discussion on when that was, whether that was the actual fact. But of course, Aslin has been allowed to speak out via his own blog site during his time in captivity. Uh, but here we ha have the key bit. Uh, Phillips, who faces a freeze of his assets, is described on the sanctions list as a video blogger who has produced and published media content that supports and promotes actions and policies which destabilize Ukraine and uh, undermine or threaten the, re the territorial integrity, sovereignty or independence of Ukraine. But essentially, if you put out a pro-Russian message, then you are going to be dealt with, um, uh, you're going to be dealt with very severely. We might have a, a repeat of the text here, but I'll, I'll just pop this up on the screen here. Um, uh, so uh, the description that he's putting out a propaganda message means that you are going to get your assets frozen. And Alex, this is pretty cr incredible stuff because does it actually mean that, uh, um, does that, does it actually mean that uh, we cannot report about what's happening at all? 
Um, you're showing an image on screen, uh, which is about Vogue magazine. Do you, do you want to comment on that? Yes, before we move on from that, Vanessa Bealey has just found a mid-April 2022 headline in the Ukrainian edition of Vogue. You might see the UA inside the O of the Vogue headline. And it crows, who is Bandera? That's Ukraine's foundational collaboration with the collaborationist with the Nazis. Who is Bandera? Three books about the legendary Ukrainian. So Vogue has a very interesting moral compass. But no, to answer your question, the territorial integrity, which is a big phrase Ukraine and Georgia and Azerbaijan use in, in their unresolved post-Soviet territorial disputes, that, that is a line which has Western foreign policy backing. But it means less and less and less in international law. Uh, because if you freeze the borders in 1991 and say all of what was the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine, Azerbaijan or Georgia is to be governed from its nominal capital, then this is increasingly not representing the wishes and plebiscites of people in that part of the world. And if, you, if I am to say this now, I might get myself on the blacklist of Baku, Tbilisi and Kiev. Uh, Ukraine in particular has an intelligence-led list of enemies down to 13-year-old Russians, sorry, 13-year-old Ukraine, uh, yes, Russians, uh, who are the Ukrainians allege are glove puppets for adults, but they are on some kind of blacklist already. And if they cross the border into the territory Ukraine controls, they will be dealt with rather nastily. Yes. Well, what's coming in on the back of uh, uh, the West's involvement? You've got an image here, uh, which yeah, takes the biscuit as, as always when this subject comes up. It does. So this is last month's gay pride parade. June, as in the rest of the uh, uh, right thinking world, as it would like to think of itself, is a big gay pride uh, month in Ukraine and in the uh, uh, Part of the territory controlled by Kiev, you get this. Uh, and what does the big banner say with the Ukrainian national colors on it? Arm Ukraine, make pride in Mariupol possible. Send us the weapons that you've run out of, or we won't be able to have a big, great, big gay pride festival and you won't be able to live with yourselves. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, just focus in a little bit more on military matters. I was sent a very interesting email this morning. Um, we can read a little bit about it. It's talking about an article um, by Scott Rich Ritter, uh, former American military man who's been speaking out a lot about the war in Ukraine and saying that, of course, the US, UK, NATO policy is wrong. Uh, but this uh, little text says Scott Ritter takes the angle that NATO has expanded its original remit uh, from the four corners of the North Atlantic to now the Pacific with ambitions to be the global protector of the West. Nevertheless, the ambition is undermined by the weakness of each member's military capabilities and capacities, uh, which makes the whole thing wishful thinking. He takes the line that the current state of UK defence illustrates only too clearly the mismatch between rhetoric and reality. The UK cites is an example of biting off more than they can chew. So David Card very kindly pushed that through. There's a link if you freeze the page to uh, his website and you can go through and have a look at uh, what the article is about. Uh, but this brings us on to uh, breaking defence. Uh, want more capable military partners. Uh, what is this about, Alex? There are many op-eds written in Washington's several uh, defence specialist titles, Brian, which tell us of creaking and, and complaining and bursting at the seams in America's mammoth uh, military establishment. Even America at this stage is militarily perhaps biting off more than it can chew. So the first of the slides I'm going to cover just as quickly as possible in this segment is a gentleman named Jonathan Lord from the think tank, the Center for a New American, Secur or New American Security. Um, people may have their views about such think tanks, but he's rightly pointing out here that the, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, is planning to cut all but four of the positions it has around the world, which are called general officer uh, or foreign area officer. These are the guys who know how to prevent misspending, corruption, and haplessness when nearly 200 nations in the world receive US military aid to uh, rejig re their Ministry of Defense and re-equip themselves and rethink their lines of command. So at a time like this, the US is cutting those posts to near zero. Task and Purpose reports that nobody wants to join the US Army this year. Meanwhile, the US Marines have, in a rare success in recent years, filled their quote recruitment quotas ahead of time, but that's because Lieutenant General Sandy Berger is cutting the, the Marine Corps something rotten. The US Army has a real reputational problem. So we talk, we read here about an institutional refusal to acknowledge multiple issues that are preventing the US from getting above 40% 
of its recruitment target this tax year. So several variables affect people's willingness to join. Uh, these are quite well known to, to uh, a lot of people, the quality of life, uh, the ability to leave or otherwise. No recruiting message or ad effort can make up for that perception. Last year, the army had its highest suicide rate in 100 years. Uh, lack of accountability for sexual assaults and harassment continues. And Brian, you well know this is true of Britain's armed forces and I think many other Western ones as well now, with the large numbers of uh, female recruits now especially finding themselves between a rock and a hard place. And it goes on and on. The article itself is much longer. NPR, the closest thing the US has to a BBC, a publicly funded body in Washington, reports a surge in Navy deserters. This is from late May. And uh, we read here that it's because of the almost impossible uh, uh, status, uh, status of leaving the military uh, that, it, that, that many young people are actually killing themselves as their only way out. Now that's not just rhetoric because Stephanie Krull, who was a legal officer in the US Air Force for seven years, gives extensive quotations to NPR, which I, I say is you know a pro-regime change, pro-interventionist uh, kind of journalistic outlet, so it, it's not at all a dissenting voice. Uh, Krull says uh, that somebody who's suffering with an acute mental health crisis should not ordinarily give, be given a discharge for it. They should instead be given care and treatment, but that's not often what we see. Uh, she goes on to say that regardless of what the top leadership say about the stig trying to get rid of the stigma of mental health, that's not what's happening on the ground. And as Krell says, in an extreme case, people can choose to take their own lives because they cannot otherwise get out of a contract that they're finding to be a dead end, or they can desert, of which there's been a long history uh, in the US as in other armed services. Um, now let's look at one particular example. Uh, this is now uh, half a year ago because the article's a month old. The US Navy Times reports on one of the many suicides on the USS George Washington during her endless refit uh, in dock in Virginia. And uh, the, the father of this junior sailor, uh, the father's name is Joe Owens, who uh, unfortunately was found shot and nobody knows quite how and why. He says, I don't agree with having these kids, and this young man was 22, basically be legalized slaves on the ship. We've talked about this before, Brian. No, very long days for which they have to go through hours of checks to get on board and uh, walk ages from a car park to do nothing on board. The father says, I do understand what they're trying to do, but the hours were ridiculous. Uh, the father of the dead sailor also adds uh, that the Navy and police have given him nothing. Everything is kind of getting brushed under the rug. I don't know what happened. On to a US Navy fire. The USS Bonhomme Richard uh, had a fire which spread wildly, reports the Navy Times. Uh, this was as of October last year due to repeated failures. Now, we've covered this before, but you and I were discussing this the other day and couldn't quite believe what we were reading because in this July 2025, so two years ago now, exactly two years, we read that uh, on the morning in question, uh, a sailor passed the ramp down to the lower V and later said it looked kind of foggy. She bought a snack from the vending machine and noticed a hazy white fog coming from a deck that was on fire. But because she couldn't smell smoke, she continued back to her berthing, her bed. And it took, after the, after the smoke was reported, it took the command duty officer at least 10 minutes to uh, raise the alarm. It was his first day in the position. A lot going on here. Sorry for advancing the slide too far there. But Brian, we don't want to give the impression that all is not well in such a massive system as the US military or any of its service branches. Obviously, the vast majority of people at all ranks are doing the best they can because they're highly committed and trained people. Uh, but things are not looking good at all, are they, for the US military to be able to manage itself in the continental US, let alone being able to intervene all over the world in the way that we see increasingly being talked about in Ukraine? Uh, no, it, it's very clear from all these things happening that there are major problems inside the American military, particularly, I, th I think, the... Uh, United States Navy. And uh, on one, one of the carriers, I think it was Harry S. Truman, we're talking about 12 uh, possible suicides because there hasn't been a, a final verdict on, on all of the deaths. But it could be that there was 12 suicides on one ship. There is something very wrong. The hours, the pressure, the lack of training. So whilst we've got the US military taking on um, policemen of the world and moving into the Pacific and we've got talk about potential war with China at home, there seems to be big problems. And of course, if you listen to American military people speaking out, they're talking about this change agenda, which is at work inside the American military, the same type of change agenda, which is clearly destroying the military here in U 
UK, but we'll have to come on to that in more detail uh, for another UK column news. Meanwhile, let's bring in Mark Anderson. Mark, you flagged up a couple of articles. Uh, this one was very interesting, NATO 2022, strategic concept. And in the preface, which is on screen, people can freeze that and have a look. I just pulled out uh, uh, one comment. We will continue to remain a bulwark of the rules-based international order. So uh, NATO is now becoming global NATO, and it's going to be there protecting the rules-based international order. But our key question is, who is that order run by? Oh, oh, absolutely. Well, historically, of course, the rules-based international order comes out of Bretton Woods. That's that 1944 meeting at the Mount Washington Hotel in New Hampshire, Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. The rules-based international order consisted of the IMF, the World Bank, uh, what became the World Trade Organization. And then NATO was born in 1949 as part of the regional, uh, regional entities part of the UN Charter. And this report you're referring to, the Strategic Concept Report, was adopted by heads of state and government at the NATO summit in Madrid, Spain, 29 June 2022. So that's a very <clears throat> recent document. Interestingly, it, it fits partially into what Alex was talking about with regards to Ukraine um, having the delivery of weapons uh, connected or conditional on uh, gay rights and pride and those sorts of social experiments. And in fact, in that NATO strategic concept report, it talks about the rules-based international order, and we're going to stand up tough to Russia. We're going to stand up tough to the People's Republic of China. But a lot of it is globalese, that two-tiered language that's intended for fooling the regular people and, and sort of communicating or messaging with the globalists. But they talk about, for instance, under the purpose and principles of that uh, NATO report, uh, number five, it says, we will promote good governance and integrate climate change, human security, and women, peace, and security agendas all across our tasks, across all of our tasks. And get this, we will continue to advance gender equality as a reflection of our values. So not only is NATO going global, even to include South America, parts of South America as partners, which, which could become eventual members, but they have this PC um, internationalist uh, ethos uh, that you see, uh, you know, in terms of the pride movement and all that. So they're they're heavy on the ideology, on the social experimentation thing. Kind of an odd angle for a military alliance to take. That was, you know, a military alliance originally created to protect Europe from the from the Warsaw Pact. And so NATO is not only expanding geographically, they're expanding, you might say, philosophically to, to take in this whole globalist, again, this globalist, globalist ideology, uh, not just their defensive, uh, you know, machinations. So it's very strange. Now, um, what you're showing there uh, now is an article posted at the Republic Broadcasting Network website, and that's by uh, Chris Hedges. He's a center-left writer. Uh, his writing is along the lines of Glenn Greenwald's, a very similar philosophy. And he mentions in here, NATO expanded its footprint to Moscow. Oh, excuse me. NATO expanded its footprint, violating promises to Moscow once the Cold War ended to incorporate 14 countries in Eastern and Central Europe into the alliance. It will soon add Finland and Sweden. It bombed Bosnia, Serbia and Kosovo. It launched wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria and Libya resulting in close to a million deaths and some 38 million people driven from their homes. It's building a military footprint in Africa and Asia. It invited Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and South Korea, the so-called Asia Pacific Four, to its recent summit in Madrid at the end of June, which is where that report came from. It has expanded its reach into the Southern Hemisphere, signing a military training partnership agreement with Colombia as recently as December of 2021 and so on and so forth. So um, I was quite surprised, even though not much surprises me about NATO anymore, that indeed on the 8th of December, the Deputy Secretary General of NATO met with the Defense Minister of Colombia, Mr. Diego Andreas Milano, 
to launch a new partnership program, Colombia became NATO's newest partner in 2017. Many of us maybe hadn't heard much about that. And the first in Latin America. As part of this partnership, and you're showing that on the screen, NATO supports Colombia in its continuing efforts to develop its armed forces while Colombia provides demining training to NATO allies and other partner countries. So um, while, while NATO, of course, is always expanding eastward, and that has been a constant threat to Russia, and that would partially explain the Ukraine-Russian war, now uh, to, to cross the Atlantic over into the uh, Western Hemisphere that far is uh, a, a rather alarming prospect, really. Because, you, you know, under, under Article 5, uh, an attack on one is an attack on all. Granted, Colombia is only a partner so far, but if they were to become the first full-fledged NATO member down the road uh, from South America, then that would mean that American troops might be expected to come to the aid of Colombia if they're attacked. Um, and you were talking about the uh, stressed-out Navy uh, Navy sailors and other other uh, soldiers in the U.S. military. Uh, what's going on here could only further embed America into this uh, patrolling the globe position it's been in now for decades. And that's a big part of this huge stress being exerted on sailors and Marines and others. So uh, this is quite, a, again, an alarming development and something that, that requires uh, uh, careful watching, you know, careful monitoring. So I wanted to bring this forth today. Well, I think uh, there are a lot of people who are concerned at the way uh, NATO is going. What I think is being created is effectively a world military system. Uh, NATO is going to be used as the seedbed. So who is NATO ultimately going to try and police? It's every man, woman and child on the planet. And that's a very worrying uh, picture. But uh, Mark, just to finish this uh, little segment, um, you, of course, attended the Red Pill um, conference a little while a while ago we've now got up on the website uh, this red pill expo here's a promising u.s lawsuit against covid tyranny very very quickly just tell us a little bit about uh, what you've had to say well this was the most promising and inspiring speech of about 18 speakers at the recent red pill conference put on by freedom force international indian indiana indianapolis indiana and uh, this, the guy that you're showing here that I took a photo of, Stanford Graham, he's with Prosecute Now, a legal outfit, and they've hired a good legal team uh, for the lawsuit Griner versus Biden. And that's Griner is a, uh, Devin Griner, he's a uh, plastic surgeon, plastic surgeon, excuse me, from Provo, Utah. And he's fighting the uh, vaccine mandate, we gotta be careful of that word vaccine, saying that he should not be required to get the jab in order to keep his medical license. And Prosecute Now is really grabbing onto this with both hands. It's a very important federal lawsuit, one of the most important that we can even imagine at this point, because what they're challenging, and this is the point we got to drive home, and the article posted on the UK Column website right now can explain much more for podcast listeners and viewers, but the crux of it is that these so-called vaccines are not vaccines at all. And I think all of us really need to refrain from calling them vaccines because in information warfare, which was the key topic that Stanford covered, the lawsuit was part of his talk on uh, uh, weaponized language. In that, when they use the word uh, vaccine and we continue to use that word, in effect, we're um, helping the COVIDocracy survive. So. What they're saying is in the lawsuit, they're arguing that um, these are uh, gene modifier injections, uh, mRNA gene modifying injections. They're not traditional vaccines at all. And if they're not vaccines, that means they're a medical treatment. And if they're a medical treatment, they absolutely under the US Constitution cannot be mandated to anyone in any way, shape or form. This lawsuit literally hinges on that word vaccine, the definition of it. And so there, there's uh, through through the uh, complaint that's issued on behalf of Mr. Griner's situation, Dr. Griner, they're really going after that. And they even have admissions, as this article states, they have admissions from Fauci and many other heavy hitters 
that these mRNA um, gene modifying injections are really something different than vaccines. So they're getting ready to hang the government on their own words. And if they win this, this is going to go a long way, in my estimation, at this point in time, to push the COVIDocracy back on its heels. So that's why I wanted to make this the first article that I wrote about the Red Pill Conference and really stress the importance and the, the optimism in a way that this article conveys. Okay, Mark, and we'll just remind our viewers and listeners that that article is up on the UK Column website. Now, I'm going to ask you to be very, very quick here because we're clock watching at the moment. Um, you, you've got um, two American Free Press articles here. I chose this one because the headline to me sounded optimistic. Senator turns tables on far left colleagues. People can obviously go to American Free Press to see these articles. But just literally in a few seconds, Mark, uh, what's your comment here? A few seconds. Well, uh, uh, this guy, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, is, you might say, a Democrat only in name. Uh, we hear about Republicans, rhinos, Republicans in name only. This guy's a Democrat in name only. Uh, this guy's more conservative than a lot of Republicans. And he's really thrown a wrench in the works. He took a lot of time. He hemmed and hawed and, and prevaricated, but he decided not to go along with the uh, the uh, climate change agenda of the Biden administration. And he cast some key votes to prevent the Democrats from getting what they wanted legislatively to um, have a much more aggressive climate change agenda. Had that aggressive agenda went through, we'd be looking at being uh, much more likely at being forced into electric cars and all these things that the uh, the green machine wants to do. So uh, Senator Manchin uh, kind of egged him along, his fellow Democrats, and then all of a sudden he dropped the ball and said, I'm not going to do it. He does have energy interests. He does get a lot of donations from uh, from energy interests. And his family was in coal mining. Granted, he's not crystal clean in, in his record, but he has done a very good thing in stopping the Democratic juggernaut from pushing America irrevocably and irretrievably into the green agenda. So kudos to Joe Manchin, many would say. Okay, Mark, thank you very much uh, for that. We've got a lot more we can discuss on those uh, subjects and we'll look forward to having you with us uh, again. Let's just uh, move on. And as always, we say to our audience, uh, if you like what we're doing, what the UK column is doing, then please join us, uh, sign up with us, become a member, join the community, talk to other uh, like-minded people through the forums. And uh, of course, you can always help us by making a purchase of the shop. And what do we want you to do? We want you to share our material uh, because this is why we're putting out the facts and the information, the comment, and we hope the truth. Please check what we're telling you. Uh, but if you can spread the information far and wide, uh, we would be delighted. Now, we've been advertising for a mega band event, July 29th, uh, 30th, 31st. So this is the coming weekend. This is Hope Festival 2022 uh, Battle in Sussex, UK. And uh, there's going to be a really excellent array of musicians performing. So this is about a fun day for people to come together and get some basic enjoyment. And I'm delighted to say I will be attending with Stephanie from the UK column. So we look forward to seeing you there. Uh, details you can freeze on screen. There's also some more here. And of course, we want to say a big thank you to Katie Joe and all of her team that have put this uh, wonderful thing together. Now, where do we move on to now? Um, let's uh, just come on to uh, uh, this one here, which is another article which has gone up on the UK column. Uh, the headline is NHS Long-Term Plan and Mental Health Implementation Plan, Phoenix or Dinosaur. Now, our viewers may be aware there's a lot of articles started to go up on the UK column, so please read them and share them. Uh, but uh, what's uh, our immediate interest with this one? Uh, Debbie Evans, you've produced uh, this particular article. I'm watching the clock on your behalf, so just tell us a little bit about what you had to say. Well, very quickly, Brian, it's just highlighting what's coming up in the future and what people need to actually understand is going to happen to them in their real lives. So 
have a look at it. I've put some highlighted bullet points and I'd be really glad of some feedback. Okay, excellent. And you've also started up a blog with us. So uh, here's entry De Debbie Evans blog, 26th of July, 2022. Um, anything you'd like to tell us about this one? Uh, all I'd like to say is I know there are so many health stories at the moment and we can't possibly cover them all on the news. So I just wanted people to know what's on my radar and what to keep an eye out for. And I'll be doing it on a weekly basis. So keep an eye on it. Yeah, excellent. Um, and please, please do share for our viewers and listeners. Please do visit the, U the UK Column website. Have a look at the articles. There's a wealth of information on there. Uh, some of it, of course, now historic. So if you use the search engine, you can go and dig out uh, articles that have uh, been posted some time ago. But we'd like you to share material that you think is of interest. Now, Debbie, you were very keen to uh, take us in what you've called a deeper dive into the BBC's uh, unvaccinated documentary, which, of course, has caused a lot of co uh, controversy. And... Um, uh, you're focusing in on this particular lady. And uh, where do we start here? Headline that you've created is, does this sound familiar from BBC pandemic 2018 contagion? Uh, what's caught your interest? Okay, so very quickly, just to introduce this segment, I would just like to say that this documentary has proven so valuable in so many ways. And I personally would like to thank all the participants, some of which we are in contact with, for all the information that they've managed to give us in order for us to do a deep dive and a forensic investigation into this, because clearly what it's showing is that there is a deep mistrust in science, a deep mistrust in professionals, in academics. So a big shout out, but First of all, Brian, let's see, let's go back to 2018. Let's see what Professor Hannah Fry was talking about. Getting data about the travel and social habits of 10,000 volunteers would clearly be a very dramatic improvement, a step change in the detail available to pandemic researchers. It is a challenge, but the technology that can make it happen is already out there. Smartphones are the perfect tool for pandemic research. Forget the phone bit. It's the combination of a built-in GPS tracker and specially designed apps that make them a data gatherer's dream. OK, so here's the plan. Adam and his fellow mathematicians need GPS data and social contact data to be able to predict the spread of a pandemic. And we're going to help him using a smartphone. We have created the BBC Pandemic app, and here's how it works. Users who download the app instantly catch our harmless virtual pandemic virus. To get the detailed data we need, the app will track their locations anonymously. Once an hour for 24 hours. Users will also be asked their age and gender, and the app asks them to record the details of every person they encounter during that 24-hour period. The combined contacts, GPS and age information will be sent to our maths team at Cambridge University. Real data from 10,000 people will fundamentally improve the accuracy and detail of the current assumptions and so predict with greater confidence than ever before how devastating the next pandemic could be. So there we have um, a little bit of what she was forecasting back in 2018. But let's look and see who Hannah Fry actually is and where she's come from. And we can clearly see that on her, on her website, she says that her ambition is to be the new Johnny Ball, um, just 40 years younger with a lot more hair. Uh, yes, and she has got a lot more red hair. She also describes herself as badass. And badass actually means mean-tempered or belligerent with extreme behaviour. 
um, or some people, maybe she's thinking of it as more as fierce, I don't know. She says that she's intellectually promiscuous. These are her words, not mine. So I, I'm not quite sure what she means. Uh, Debbie, um, Debbie and, if I can just, just come in there. I'm just intrigued to know what uh, Alex's view on this, because uh, those descriptors are from Hannah Fry herself. Alex, what sort of person wants to describe themselves as intellectually promiscuous and a, a badass? Um, a youngish, fairly attractive woman who wishes to objectify herself sexually and then plausibly deny it is the answer, Brian. Right. So um, this this is this is ego at work with this young lady. She's got mathematical ability. There's no doubt about this. But we're we've got ego at work. Sorry about that, Debbie. I just uh, I feel quite strong strongly when I read those descriptors, I thought, what exactly is the personality we're dealing with? And I don't get a good feeling. No, you're absolutely right to not get a good feeling. And thank you very much, Alex, for that, because that sums pretty much up um, everything that, that I was seeing. And, you know, if, if we look at Hannah Fry and, and who she actually is and the material she, that she delivers, because there's loads of it on YouTube, I mean, just go into YouTube and you'll see some very dark titles as well. But then I found an interview that she'd um, she'd she'd been included in with. Um, you might have to read it on the screen for me, Brian, because it's a little bit small for me. But I think it was with um, Professor Dame Athene Donald from Cambridge University. And this proved very revealing. So I think we might have a couple of clips from it. Right, this is called Par The Paradigm Shift. And uh, and uh, there was an interview. Now I'm gonna say before we watch this little clip that unfortunately, Professor Dame uh, Donald had had a fall just before the, uh, the interview took place. So you can see on her face that she's hit her face very badly. And I wanted to explain that, that that is why she looks rather strange in this video clip. But I'm sure we've all got sympathy for her uh, because um, that cannot have been pleasant, but she's still gone ahead with the interview. So let's have a look at the clip. Do you think things are changing elsewhere, though? Do you I think, think they're changing, but you so, see how seems further ahead. Yeah. Um, OK, so uh, what do I think? I think a couple of reasons. I think for starters, it's quite helpful that we're literally around the corner from the BBC. And so it's just it just ends up that, you know, you end up being known by them. Well, Debbie, that's a very short clip and I had to listen to it several times. They're discussing really the relationship between UCL and the BBC. And uh, what does Hannah say? Well, it's quite handy, really, because we're just around the corner so we can build a relationship. So this is the girls equivalent, of the old boys network. Well, um, yeah, it gets it gets even deeper, actually, because there are very definitive um, connections between UCL and the BBC. They launched a major partnership um, with BBC Research and Development, their data science research partnership. And this includes Bristol, Bristol, Manchester University, Imperial Queens, University College London. And geographically, they're literally around the corner. So it's almost like they're kind of a stage school if you like, which we'll come on to see in a minute. But I mean, just have a look at some of Hannah Fry's productions on YouTube, and you can see that she's been involved in, in many, many projects, including Deep Mind. She was also responsible for getting um, the UK out of its first lockdown. She, she was doing the modeling. So she's been involved at very high levels in a number of, in a number of places. Um, I don't know if you've got another clip of um, Hannah at all, yes, um, we, but we you have, have, sorry. We have, Debbie, uh, because uh, you were interested in sort of how she got trained, how did she get into this? And the next little clip, yeah. uh, they start talking about the Bright Club. <laughs> um, no, it, it's, it's very interesting. How did you get into this? Oh, it was accidental, completely <laughs> accidental. So um, I was doing my postdoc, and um, there is this sort of academic comedy night. I don't know if you've come across it. It's called Bright Club. Oh, yes, I've heard and, of it. Um, uh, it was when it very first started in London. I think London was one of the ones, that, the first um, places to do it. And I think essentially the thing about Bright Club is that um, 
the um, standard is quite low. <laughs> so you'd only have to be like, okay, to really stand out as quite good. But, but the, the idea behind Bright Club is, is not sort of like, let's do a really hilarious comedy night. It's more that when you take academics and you ask them to speak about their work, they tend up, they, they tend to fall into the same old patterns of like, here's a PowerPoint slide and I'm just going to talk at you. And the thing about saying, no, 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 you have to make it into a comedy, um, you know, five minute comedy story or whatever. It just forces people to completely throw everything that they know out the window and start from scratch. It's kind of quite a useful technique. Um, and so uh, I just, one of my friends was doing it and they wanted me to do it with them. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Anyway, it turned out that somebody in the audience that day asked me to go and do another talk, uh, which I did, which was filmed and went on the internet. And it went sort of a little like mini viral. And then um, someone who was watching that invited me to New York to do a talk. Um, and that was a talk that I gave. I was just mucking around really, but I did, gave a talk called The Mathematics of Love, um, which was actually some quite legitimate mathematical techniques um, that applied to dating. And that went super, 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 super viral, um, had something crazy like a few eight million views or something in total. Um, and really, I think that was the starting point of where people then started coming to me and asking me to do things. So, so Debbie, I'm, I'm going to say, I'll let you comment on this. I'm going to bring Alex back in because I have a particular question for him. But what was your opinion, having seen uh, Hannah Fry uh, fondling her hair and talking about how she just happened to be selected Oh, sorry, you're talking to me. Um, well, I mean, I was immediately, I was interested in the Bright Club. You know, I was wanting to research. I want to do a, a forensic research into this documentary, and I really think it's worthy of an empirical paper. But the Bright Club was formed in 2009, uh, 2009 and it was formed by a, a comedian. So what, what are we looking at here? Are we looking at a kind of common purpose for actors? You know, is, is, is that what we're seeing here for, for Clever Clogs? Because Steve Cross, the, um, the guy that actually started the Bright Club, he was working at the Wellcome um, Institute as a curator. And now all of the universities seem to have linked up with the Bright Club, including University College London. So, you know, this Bright Club is very interesting. So then we have to look and see who funds the Bright Club. Who is in collaboration with the Bright Club? Because then that gets very interesting because they're, they're joined to the University College London as well as all these universities. They're also joined to the Wellcome Trust and the Science and Technology Facility Council, otherwise known as the UKRI, which we'll come on into a minute. And then, of course, you've got the BBC featuring people from the Bright Club in, in the Edinburgh Festival. So people like Brian Cox, all your celebrity scientists have been, well, most of them seem to have been groomed through this comedy club. So Hannah Fry is a stand-up comedian. She has been referred to and described as a stand-up comedian. So, you know, where, where further does this go to? How, how much deeper does this go? Um, well, I'm not sure quite which slide. Sorry, Brian, go on. Let's bring in Alex. How deep do you think this goes? Because I, I'm getting a, an impression that we've got a network that the public is totally unaware of. And this young lady who likes to call herself a badass comedian is able to use the BBC's multi-billion pound propaganda budget to effectively play with the nation's mind. What's behind deep. it? Deep, Brian, is the operative word because uh, Hannah Fry is gifted with not only attractive looks and a good command of the English language, but she has a mezzo-soprano timbre. And when she's doing girl talk, or again, plausibly, deniably, but she was putting on husky, alluring tones there for the males as well in, in that clip. She was talking over the head of, uh, of Dame Athene to, to males, I think. What's going on there is using the voice to draw people in, which the Brits, we haven't got time to do a three-way with Mark, given the timing, but Mark would attest or any American who watches the British scene. The Americans in particular are suckers for this. If it's said in a, in a well-presented British voice with a good intonation and half trained, you know, Cambridge Footlight is a good example, you can take the media and entertainment and academic world and policy-making world by storm. 
stateside and worldwide. The Brits have got it made in that regard. So uh, the, the only other observation off the top of my head is that the Bright Club is at least semantically similar, and I think you could put it in the same intellectual stable, should we say the Bloomsbury set between the wars. It comes from the same stable as the Brights, which is a mid-20th century, or had a, a later reflorescence, but it's, it's, a, it's a London and Oxbridge based idea of atheists committing themselves to uh, godless humanism, basically, a new kind of moralism. Some of the people who have been uh, leading lights in that, such as Professor Richard Dawkins, are actually culturally pro-Christian atheists. Don't confuse Dawkins now with Dawkins 30 years ago. But the intellectual milieu out of which the Brights are drawn, and again, I can't put my finger on the, the, the jointery with, with the Bright Club, but the, the, the term was used mid-century in the age of C.S. Lewis to mean people who wish to play God among men. Okay. Well, um, Mark, I, I'll give you the opportunity to comment as well, because, of course, it seems to me that many people in the States still believe that the BBC is a trustworthy broadcasting organisation. But here we're demonstrating the BBC in bed with people who are going to control uh, what's it called? Health security. Do you get a warm feeling about this young lady? No, not at all. I, we showed her the other day, didn't we, interviewing unvaccinated people and how condescending and uh, arrogant she was toward them, talking in a kind of breathy way. Oh, so you don't like to be vaxxed, that sort of tone. And yeah, it shows the, the subtle marriage, maybe not so subtle marriage between entertainment media and news media. And yes, Americans generally, although I think it's slipping a little bit, might put more credence in the BBC than they would say NBC because it seems more authoritative. I, I don't think it's as strong as it was, uh, but this, this helps uh, you know what we're doing on this show and me being part of it as an American correspondent uh, helps counter that, right? So we're doing our job to overturn these false images and this uh, condescending, patronizing way that Hannah Fry approaches this. Uh, it's really disgusting, as if these anti-vax people or unvaccinated people are crazy or something or somehow unbalanced. Um, this is going to come back to haunt her someday, in my opinion. Well, I hope we're working very hard to make that haunting take place, uh, Mark. Um, but uh, <laughs> right. we just bring this image up on screen because this was one that uh, we've used before because there she is in a denim jacket. But I did notice that uh, for the unvaccinated storyline, she's got toadstools, mushrooms uh, on her jacket, um, which possibly significant. But Debbie, we've got another short clip here, which I just want to squeeze into today's news because... She's uh, Hannah Fry here is talking about how she communicates. And uh, let's watch this clip and then we'll just have a few seconds of discussion. Um, let's change tack again. This is a question from Helen. What are the key skills to communicate research effectively to your audience who are from all walks of life? Did TV people ask you to talk or behave in a certain way in front of the camera? Okay, so um, uh, the tips of how to communicate with your audience. Okay, so the first thing I would say is that it doesn't matter how technically minded you are or how new to these subjects you are, people like stories. Everybody always likes stories. So if you can wrap up an idea in a story, it will always land better than if you just say what the idea is. But the second thing I think is a recognition that um, when you're communicating with an audience, it's about what your audience wants, not what you want to tell them. So what you have to do in your mind is you have to work out where they are and you have to work out where you want them to get to and then plot a path where you bring them with you. I know that sounds like I'm saying some things like say, but like, okay, so let's say that I, I, so I have a slot on Six Music every week with Lauren Laverne where I go on and talk about something sciencey. So let's say I wanted to talk about binary numbers one week. I wouldn't just go on and talk about binary numbers. I would talk about, um, uh, you know, maybe the uh, example where you have poisoned bottles of wine and not enough tests, um, or uh, you know, or, or I think that there's a. I'm slightly, 
I'm not using an example that I've actually done on Lauren Avern now, so <laughs> like, so the, and don't Google this and find out that I'm wrong, but I think that they used to test the syphilis by mixing uh, vials of blood um, in a binary fashion in order to minimize the number of tests that they needed to use. So I would do something like that. I would tell some kind of story that captures the imagination of everybody. And then it, so it's the thing that I want to deliver then feels like a secret key that you need to unlock the next part of the story. Um, rather than the other way around. I think that's the big secret. Um, in terms of how I, uh, what was it, how I looked or what was it? Uh, yeah, do, do they tell you how to behave in front of the camera? Okay, Radio 4, I, I'm actually, I know it sounds like I'm quite posh, but I'm really not. So my dad worked in a factory and I, I was born in Essex. So, um, but Radio 4, I think I talked a bit more like that, right, when I was like a bit younger. Um, <laughs> and Radio 4, not now for me. That happened. Um, and then also um, they did, the, an executive producer from the BBC did come around my house and look in my wardrobe and tell me what clothes I wasn't allowed to wear. <laughs> there was a bit of a joke that I had a thing for cardigans, which I still do. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> so okay. a little bit. They told Lucy Worsley to take out her hair clip. Oh, I'm so glad I don't appear on TV. So Debbie, this is the lady skewing people's brains and thought processes so that she can dismiss concerns about vaccines and vaccine damage, which is, which have clearly killed some people and produced life threat, life changing uh, adverse reactions in other people. Uh, she's laughing and joking like a schoolgirl. Just give us a, a few words uh, as we end today's news. She's a comedian. She, she's a comedian. You know, she's she's been groomed, she's been trained. But you know what? This 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 unvaccinated documentary very quickly because I know we're tight for time. But I can honestly tell you that I have now dug dug so deep and gone so forensically into this. I can categorically tell you that, and this is exclusive, and this is where I want to be able to talk more about this documentary because it's un, it's unveiled so more than unvaccinated and what i can reveal is that the mhra the bbc the welcome institute all nhs trusts just about every single organization you can think of which are attached to the bill and melinda gates foundation and the world economic forum and all of those come under the umbrella of the uk research innovation now this is, we haven't looked at this as closely as we need to, and we will in future um, editions. But what this has revealed to me is something that's never been spoken about before, which is basically a one world science. And one world science does exist. And it's, it can be found for anybody that wants to jump on the internet and, and have a search. It can be found at worldwidescience.org. This is a massive organization with 70 countries. This is the global science gateway. So all of these experts that we are meant to trust are all wrapped up in this. This is deep web, Microsoft. It involves the USA, China, Finland, the UK. We'll come on to this, I know, in future news. But this unvaccinated documentary and the participants of this documentary have been incredibly brave and have uncovered far more than I think they even realise. So thank you to everyone that's participated and everyone that's been involved in it, and we will come back to it. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that, and we certainly will come back to it. Alex, uh, you've got a matter of seconds just to take our minds into a slightly more humorous place uh, with your ending slides. Here is uh, Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte, at a recent uh, motor rally event being interviewed. And as a meme, somebody has put speech bubbles up. Uh, he's being asked, Prime Minister, what's your favourite car? And he replies, here comes the pun. If you were to pronounce it the Dutch-English way, it would be the Land Rover, meaning the, the Land Rover as in the vehicle. But if you pronounce it natively as Dutch, the Lont Rover, it means the land thief. Here we have another joke from the Dutch-speaking world. Uh, owing to extreme drought and the threat of water shortages, Brussels Swimming Pool has decided to close lanes three, five, and seven. 
we have a, a, a rip take out of the now former spokeswoman of the White House, Jen Psaki, uh, in a Russian joke. She's saying, you know that Dead Sea? Yeah, Putin killed it. Uh, we have an Aztec human sacrifice based meme here. Government protecting us from climate change since 1350. And of course, that relates to a victim having his heart ripped out and sacrificed to the sun at the top of a pyramid to make sure that the sun rises the next morning. Uh, I think that's the end of it from the memes from me. I would just note that uh, Hannah Fry, as we saw when Ian Davis was on, um, spoke uh, over the heads of the recalcitrant plebs who wouldn't get their jabs, giving the lie to what she said about taking the story with the, taking the audience with you when she's actually uh, met her match scientifically, she studiedly avoids eye contact. And that's the one thing that, well, by her own admission, she's a kind of Pygmalion figure. She's been picked to represent uh, what our rulers regard as the plebs. And she frankly admitted that they readed her accent and her wardrobe. Uh, but the one thing that you cannot train in early adulthood out of people because it's natural to them is if they don't like what they're hearing, they avoid eye contact unless you go to a very posh school and university like me where you learn to put it on as a front when need be, where, where need be. But here they really shot themselves in the foot. Anna Fry's got too much authenticity in one regard. She couldn't make eye contact with people when they were talking science back at her. Okay, Alex, thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us. Mark Anderson, thank you very much for joining UK Column. And uh, Debbie, thank you for your uh, excellent analysis on unvaccinated. Thank you to all of our audience and to everybody that's supporting UK Column. Uh, as we always say, please join us, take out that subscription, share our work. Uh, that's it for now. We will be back shortly for extra time.